from Green Biz Group, welcome to Center Stage, the best of live interviews from Green Biz events. I'm Joel McCower. There is an underlying problem here, and that is that the clean tech community's message was buried in the last election. So why did the promise of a 21st century clean economy and all the jobs that go with it, why is this message about this powerful emerging economic sector getting overshadowed? Nicole Lederer is co-founder of the policy advocacy group E2. She spoke with California Congressman Jared Huffman, John Power, chairman and co-founder of Clean Capital, and Michael Terrell, who leads energy market development at Google. They spoke about what business leaders should do to compensate for the lack of leadership on renewable energy from policy leaders in Washington. The conversation took place at the Verge Conference in Santa Clara, California in September 2017. Let's listen in. I think I'd like to start by observing that I am hearing, and I assume you are hearing, a question a lot lately that goes something like this, and this was posed in a recent Verge article as well. What should clean tech business leaders do to compensate for the lack of leadership from policy leaders in Washington? Uh, this panel is going to reframe that question entirely to what can every business leader in this room do to educate, encourage, and ultimately to compel government to do its job? So we all know at least if you don't know, you need to know that public policy is the substrate in which all of us are doing business, but especially companies um, in an emerging sector like the clean economy. Policy determines your access to financing, um, it defines your markets, and it also determines whether you're competing on a level playing field. So whether you're in the clean energy space or water management or building efficiency or transportation or food technology or any of the topics that are being covered at this conference, um, all of those are highly policy-affected arenas. But fortunately, this room collectively represents enormous advocacy power and leverage if you come to the table. So with that, I'd like to start with Jared. You've been on both sides of that table, uh, both as an advocate and as a legislator. From your perspective in Congress, and given the issues that you work on, does it matter to you if clean tech leaders um, get engaged on policy advocacy, and what happens if they don't? Right. Well, first, good morning. It's great to be with you. Thanks for uh, all the leadership and innovation in this room, and thanks for including me. Uh, it does matter to me that clean tech is at the table back in Washington. I hope you won't give up on Washington, even though right now uh, environmental protection and clean technology and climate leadership are not exactly in favor in the current administration or the current Congress. Uh, whether you are engaged or not, uh, what you need to know is that other people are, and they're going to make decisions that will affect you. So I think it's a good idea to be in the room. And we could talk about all sorts of examples of why that matters. Uh, maybe these uh, critical incentives that we have for uh, wind energy are the best example because they have, uh, they have been allowed to expire. They've been put into annual extensions that were highly uncertain at various times over the last decade or so. And you can really chart the progress uh, of the wind industry 
by how good a job Congress and the administration did at providing that long-term signal of support for these incentives. Now, thankfully, we've got it on a, a pretty good trajectory now for a longer-term phase-out. That's provided enough certainty and enough incentive that the wind energy is going gangbusters right now. But there were moments uh, in the last decade when it almost ground to a halt and tens of thousands of jobs were lost. So that's a, just one of many examples you could cite where really important uh, policy decisions hang in the balance back in Washington. And if you're at the table, I think it's going to make a positive difference. Well, Michael, uh, you are the chief energy procurement officer for a company that has the, the market power of a country. Um, your decisions have a huge impact on a whole ecosystem of, of energy-related companies and, of and a big impact on local economies. But the decisions you make about where to locate facilities and, and how to get the renewable energy that, that you require are significantly influenced by state and federal policies. So at what point and at what level of government does Google engage in policy advocacy and how do you measure outcomes? First, also thanks again for having me. It's a great audience here. Um, I should say that uh, when it comes to clean energy from a business perspective, it's full steam ahead. Uh, and that's because clean energy makes so much sense for business, for growth, for the economy. Uh, there was a gathering here in this room on Monday of corporate renewable energy buyers and the room was absolutely packed, uh, which is very exciting. So. That's a message that I am more than happy to take to any policymaker in any jurisdiction, whether it's at the national level, the regional level, or the local level, and it does take engagement at all of those levels to really affect change. Um, in terms of how do you measure change in progress, you measure that through uh, the uptake of policies that help to promote clean energy and, and, and a better climate. And uh, I actually find that I enjoy going into the toughest places to try to change hearts and minds and really make the business case because all of us here have an incredible case to make. And, uh, and so as at Google, that means going into markets like North Carolina where we worked with other tech companies and other buyers to create a first-of-its-kind renewable purchase program. The state of Georgia where we just this summer had a, a new purchase program approved. And these are markets that weren't traditionally friendly to clean energy. Uh, we've done the same in markets like Taiwan and are also working uh, in Europe to push forward really strong renewable energy policies there. Let's hope this, this translates into D.C. There's been a little bit of a change there, but like I said, I think if you look at the, the, the strength and the interest and the growth of this space, uh, the future actually is very positive, and I think we will see positive change to continue. Well, there's a, a big company perspective. I'd like to turn to John. You know, clean Capital operates at the intersection of clean energy and finance and is impacted by both regulation and legislation in both of those arenas. So how do those policies affect your ability to grow your company? And how do you represent Clean Capital's best interests given the limited resources of a small company? Yeah, starting up? absolutely. So with Clean Capital, we're financing clean energy projects around the country. Policy touches everything that we do across the board, whether it be local net metering policy, whether it be SRECs in New Jersey, or whether it be uh, SEC policy around the, the, the way we handle the funds. Let me ask a question just for the audience. Raise your hand if your firm or company has a government affairs shot. Yeah, so, some do. 
most don't, right? Most don't have a leader like Michael who's going in and understanding that there are literally 50 different policy fiefdoms that you've got to manage within, uh, within the work you're doing. Um, but it touches, as I said, policy touches everything you do, and if you don't understand it and you don't at least try to follow it, uh, it's going to significantly affect your market. Whether you're buying a project in a place, uh, not to hit on Nevada, but when Nevada cut their net metering, uh, which now may be coming back, and there's you know, this constant back and forth, if, you, if you're not paying attention to that, you could really be spending some significant dollars in the wrong direction. It could significantly cost your company. So you've got to understand it. You've got to map it. But you don't need to have, I mean, if you're Google, you can have an amazing policy shop. We have eight people uh, on our team. Uh, I have probably the most policy background. But there are a lot of resources that you can tap into that don't have to, you don't have to put the effort forward to do all the homework, right? Whether it be E2 or in solar, the Solar Energy Industry Association, or if you're in wind, AWEA, they are doing the homework for you. You just have to make the effort to pay attention. And when you can pay attention, whether it be occasionally, you know, joining a webinar and understanding what's going on with a recent solar trade case, for instance, or reading a policy paper on X, you can understand where the market's going. And from a business perspective, it's critical because it helps us have a leg up on where we want to go next. What's also really important, though, is ha having your voice at the table. As the congressman said, there's a, a famous Washington phrase that's if, if you're not at the table, you're on the floor, right? Meaning if you're not at the table as part of the conversation, your programs are getting cut and, and thrown out the door, right? And why does a business voice matter? Because having been on the flip side of this, I was uh, President Obama's chief sustainability officer for the federal government and sat on the other side of the table when Nicole would bring in business leaders uh, from around the country. You see a lot of the faces over and over again in the government affairs world. And whether it be a, an outside lobbying shop or, you know, you, you never know what issue they're bringing to the table. But when someone comes to you and said, look, you know, I own uh, X factory in, in Iowa and this is what we're doing and this is why what you're doing affects me, as a policymaker, that's incredibly powerful. And it's not that difficult to do. You don't have to be a policy expert to do it. I'd argue most of the policy experts on the other side of the table you'll meet with don't know what they're doing anyways. So when you meet with them, and you can educate, not to rip on policymakers, yeah, no, but <laughs> when you can educate them, you know, they get their information from reading think tank papers, high level, often geopolitical uh, documents. If you can give them the ground truth of how it's going to affect you, that significantly impacts things for them and can really change the way they're going to pursue. And organizations like E2 can help provide you the talking points. They can train you on how to communicate. You just have to put that extra effort forward uh, to be part of the dialogue. Thanks. Well, let's talk about one policy in particular that may have a big impact on this community, and that is um, the potential infrastructure bill. Now, Jared, you're on the House Transportation Infrastructure Committee. What kind of opportunities does that bill offer this audience, and how should they engage? That's a great question. Uh, I think we're all trying to figure out how serious the opportunity to do something really big in the maybe multi-trillion dollar level on infrastructure really is. Uh, it should have been a day one priority for the Trump administration, uh, but it really wasn't. And there should be a lot of action going forward in the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee in which I serve. I'm sorry to tell you that it, it's really not. Um, 
the, the uh, bandwidth of, of this Congress and this administration seems to be totally consumed with these constant runs at repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act. Uh, we thought we were done with that and maybe could move on to possible tax reform, possible infrastructure, but uh, we're back at it again uh, because of what's going on in the U.S. Senate. So I don't know how many more cycles of health care fights we're going to have. Every time we have one, it reduces the chances of us doing something serious on infrastructure. Now, even if we put infrastructure on the agenda, you know, there's a lot of politics involved here. And it's not clear because we've gotten so many mixed signals from the Trump administration whether they want to do a good old-fashioned public infrastructure package, which could be enormously popular, which could drive a lot of really much needed investments, could be great for the economy, or whether they want to play around with the tax code and uh, subsidize private types of infrastructure, basically cherry pick the infrastructure in our country that can be monetized and throw incentives at it. That's not really what our country needs, in my opinion. And if that's all there is at the end of the day, uh, I don't think we're going to get much. Well, that leads into a, a broader question that I'd like to pose to all of you, and starting with Michael. Um, Michael, you said that, that there is an underlying problem here, and that is that the clean tech community's message was buried in the last election. So why did the promise of a 21st century clean economy and all the jobs that go with it, and by the way, E2 research shows that there are currently 3 million clean energy jobs in the US today. Um, they're extremely geographically distributed, and they're growing faster than any other sector. So why is this message about this powerful emerging economic sector getting overshadowed? And how do we turn that around? And Michael first, but I'd like to hear from all of you on that. Yeah, I think that was a learning from last fall, which is that this message was clearly not breaking through everywhere. And I think I would leave folks here with, with, with three uh, points. One, uh, again, to emphasize that uh, clean energy and the clean economy is good for growth and jobs in the future. It's a $300 billion global market. There's three times as many wind and solar jobs as there are coal jobs. And if you just look at our own energy investments that we've made at Google, uh, that's contributed to $3.5 billion of new capital deployment around the world. Um, second, this is everywhere now, which is something that it really wasn't a few years ago. It's not just limited to California or big cities. There was a great article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago profiling Fowler, Indiana, which has uh, really been booming because of the wind business that's come there that's uh, associated with the um, establishment of new wind farms. And they have tens of millions of dollars flowing into the local tax base, $33 million in new roads, and hundreds of new jobs associated with wind. So it really is everywhere now. Um, and if it isn't, it should, it should be because it makes so much sense. Um, and I think lastly, we need to open the tent and we need to get more players involved in the space. Um, back to my point about Monday's conference on clean energy buyers, um, there are about 50 companies globally who are doing these large renewable energy power purchase agreements like we're doing at Google. 50. There needs to be 50,000. 
And we need to be looking at policies that open up the platform for more people to get involved and be part of the space. They may not necessarily be what we traditionally thought of as clean energy policies, whether it's a, a mandate or subsidy. It could just be creating more competitive markets because the great thing about this space now is that it really can compete and so give it the opportunity to do that. And I think if we do those three things, you really will see the level of interest um, grow tremendously. The, the jobs drumbeat just needs to be hit over and over again. Uh, I'm part of a group called New Energy America, which just recently launched. that put out a report yesterday about clean energy jobs in rural America. And what, echoing what Michael said, three to one clean energy jobs to traditional fossil fuel jobs. But in 41 states now, clean energy jobs are trumping fossil fuel jobs. I think that's an incredible message in places where uh, it is both red yeah. and blue. Uh, the other thing I'd say, because of the election, and this may be a real benefit to the industry, which is, uh, hurts me in my stomach to say this, but separating out the climate change conversation from the clean energy economy conversation now can ha sort of happen. When uh, President Trump announced pulling out of Paris, which uh, for many in the room is probably against a lot of our values and a very frustrating thing to see, the response from corporate America was overwhelming on the other side to say, what, we're still in. Right? We're still in because of all these other benefits that it does for us, not just from an um, environmental perspective, but from a bottom line perspective, from a, a jobs and a health perspective. Um, you know, Ceres put out a great series, uh, put out a great series of letters uh, signed by Google and many others, uh, including Clean Capital, but literally hundreds of companies that came out and said, we're still in. And it's that clean energy economy that's going to keep driving forward. Now, the state, going back to the, the reason you need to get involved, is because th that's going to happen right now at a state-by-state -state level. And you've got to be paying attention to how you can play and be involved in those states and opening up new markets so you have the opportunity to compete and, I think, be part of those, those projects. Last word, Jared. Well, I, I agree. I, I've been heartened by the response from corporate America as well after, after uh, President Trump's decision on Paris. But I'm... Uh, as a policymaker, I, I can't stop looking at this through the paradigm of climate change, especially with so many parts of the United States sure. underwater and devastated, and Puerto Rico today. And, uh, you know, I guess it's possible that these extreme weather events that we've been living through uh, could bring us back around to a leadership posture on global climate policy. I hope we, I hope we can get that done. Um, but in the meantime, I think all that leadership we're seeing at the state level, at the local government level, at the non-governmental and the business level is more important than ever. And it's great to see this event and other uh, aspects of that leadership rolling forward strong. And I'm not saying the leadership is it's incredibly important, but the fact that we're not going to see it within this, these next four years out of the administration. Can we, hey, we got an election in 2018. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. well, Don't forget. Yeah, but not for the White House, right? But can we keep pushing the clean energy economy forward without that leadership going forward and get the sure. same results, right? And you I have to. We have, have to. to. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Well, I, I'd like to, to hand off to our sidebar here and see if there are any audience questions that they have for us. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because you guys are answering in a way that's really multifaceted as reflected of your perspectives. Um, and at the same time, a lot of our audience is sort of thinking, okay, well, how useful, what kind of impact are we actually going to make given that all these major companies are still in 
does it really make a difference from a federal government administration? Um, you know, a lot of the companies in here don't have government affairs offices. They can leverage E2 and others, but, you know, what it, what will it, does it actually make a difference at this point with these four years under Trump? I'm certainly going to argue that it does. In fact, I, I think it's essential that your voice be part of this process. Um, look, the Trump administration is loaded up with fossil fuel interests. Uh, they are making decisions across the spectrum of public policy that are either going to be uh, acceptable to you or could be really, really detrimental to you. So the idea that you would not be fully engaged right now, I think, is, is just not strategically sound. And of course, from my perspective, I want to see good public policy outcomes. Our best hope of, of fighting back some of these uh, dirty fossil energy priorities is by having the clean energy world and, and the future at the table. So we do need you. And we don't live in a dictatorship, right? So whatever he wants to get done, you know, by, by taking your message to members of Congress, for instance, right, as the DOE budget starts to come around and go talk about R&D on things like RPE, which is an incredibly powerful tool to help drive right. the, the area that we're all focused on, members of Congress, they really manage and own that budget, which is all critical to what we do. So taking that message, helping to explain what's going on to them, and even people within the DOE realm, for instance, or EPA, uh, you know, under, under um, Administrator Pruitt is a really challenging place to be right now for, for bureaucrats. But taking your message in and arguing the case to them is critically important. We saw this with the grid report that Secretary Perry was doing. Right. And there was a significant pushback on that effort. And what many thought was going to be basically a handoff to, to big coal mm -hmm. got handcuffed because so many folks went in and argued mm -hmm. the fact that, wait a minute, renewals are not crushing the grid. This is the best thing that ha distributed generation is the best thing to happen to the grid. Uh, well, in 50 years, it only started 70 years ago. So, uh, you know, those those arguments are critically important today more than ever. Oh, and they cover the tax policies that are being debated right now. Tax reform is probably more seriously on the table now than it has been in a long, long time. And that means some of these special incentives we provide for the fossil fuel industry, but not for clean energy. Uh, are under consideration. It means some of the lifeline uh, policies we have for clean energy could uh, be in the crosshairs. So, I mean, it's whether it's energy policy per se or tax policy or uh, things happening at the EPA, you know, all of it really should matter. Yeah, just to add to that, I would say don't assume the outcome. Our, our voice is more powerful than it's ever been, and it's up to us to use it. I'd just like to, to thank you all and, and close by saying the following things. Um, do not step away from policy now because it looks daunting in Washington or at the state level because you all have a lot more sway than you think, than most of you know that you do. Um, the important thing is to know how to represent your company to a lawmaker. Know the economic impact, both direct and indirect, that you have on your community, your state, and your country. Know the number of jobs you create, directly and indirectly, and where those jobs are, including your supply chain. Um, be able to articulate the additional benefits your company provides, including reduced demand for scarce resources, reduced cost to consumers, predictable supply and price of energy and other resources, public health benefits, improved national security, and export opportunities. Those are all the terms in which you should be thinking about your own business. 
um, when you come to the policy table. And I hope that you'll join us for our breakout session at 1.30 where, where we'll discuss more specific policies and maybe even do some advocacy um, training and, and uh, modeling. So with that, thank you very much to the panelists. You've been listening to Nicole Letterer of E2, U.S. Congressman Jared Huffman, Clean Capital's John Power, and Google's Michael Terrell in conversation at the Verge 17 conference. For more Center Stage podcasts, go to greenbiz.com slash center stage. And while you're there, tune into GreenBiz 350, our weekly podcast covering the news and the people behind the news in sustainable business and clean technology. For all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.